This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Very early on in my role was that I actually had to spend a lot of time educating my HR professionals on and colleagues on the difference between faculty and staff and that there were legitimate differences there. And, you know, here's what that looks like. And so I spent sessions where I would pull my HR colleagues in a room, starting with HR leadership and then working with their teams. And I would just talk about even just like the mindset of faculty, right? And um, I would talk about the trajectory of faculty members. How does someone get into academic medicine? What does it mean to be a faculty member? What does it mean to to stay a faculty member? And how is that different from our experience as staff at the institution? back to the Faculty Factory podcast. On today's episode, we have Kamara Ellefson, the Associate Vice President of Talent Strategy and Faculty Affairs at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Hi, Kamara. How are you today? I'm doing very well, Kim. Thank you. Well, Kamara, I can't help but noticing that over the many, many years I've known you through the AAMC Group on Faculty Affairs, your title was Senior Director, and now I see you have a new Associate Vice President title. We'd love to hear a story of how this promotion happened and how your career brought you into talent strategy and faculty affairs. Do you mind sharing with us your journey? I would be happy to, Kim. I'm very excited about what I believe this title, uh, Associate Vice President for Talent Strategy and Faculty Affairs, represents uh, for the Medical College of Wisconsin. I have been telling people recently that I really think it's a reflection of both the influence and the impact that the Office of Faculty Affairs has had on the campus here at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I got started uh, in faculty affairs probably just about 10 years ago now, and I often tell people that I think it's probably one of the best accidental career moves um, that I ever made. I I was actually asked to uh, come into the Office of Faculty Affairs by our then Dean of the School of Medicine. Uh, he wasn't fully satisfied with the services of the Office of Faculty Affairs at the time, and it was a very, very small group. I think there were probably three people in there total. Uh, they they ended up, because of their staffing levels, really only being able to do a lot of, you know, transactional kind of processing work, and most of it really was around the promotion and tenure process here at MCW. And our dean was looking at some of the innovative programming that we had going on in the Office of Human Resources. So um, my background uh, is in psychology. I've been a human resources professional for about 25 years now. And I was living in, in human resources at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I was in charge of recruitment and some other innovative sorts of succession planning and development programs that we had going on. And we were doing a lot of really exciting things for staff. And the dean of the School of Medicine really thought, you know, I think there's some things there that are transferable. Do, you know, and started to think to himself, do you think that maybe they would be interested in coming over and helping to sort of reboot or relaunch the Office of Faculty Affairs? And so he approached uh, my boss, who was the vice president of human resources at the time. And she came to me and she said, you know, Kamara, would you be, would you be up for a challenge? And I thought, I I was like both parts excited and scared uh, because the way that our model had been working here at the Medical College of Wisconsin was that as human resources professionals, we had very little, very infrequent uh, interaction with faculty. And so at that point, yet faculty were kind of the scary group of people that I hadn't had a whole lot of interaction with. Right. But I thought, well, I'm up for a challenge. Uh, let's let's see what we could do. 
And so that was 10 years ago. And I have been working in sort of this hybrid model. I never left my role in human resources. So that's where you get some of that talent strategy uh, flavor in in my title. Um, And so I like to tell people that I sort of have a foot in both worlds. I, I work both in the Office of Human Resources as well as the Office of Faculty Affairs. And my job is really to, you know, leverage the power of, of both of those offices to to make our campus better. So that's a little bit of my story. And again, I think the AVP title um, is really something that our whole office, our whole operation uh, can be proud of. It feels to me kind of like the culmination of uh, the influence and impact that we've been able to have on our campus over these last 10 years. Well, this is just it's so interesting to me, number one, that your dean had the wherewithal, you know, the first of all, clearly you were when in HR, you were doing some good work that you were on his radar at some point, or mm-hmm. um, so he had that, uh, you had that recognition factor. And the fact that something kind of light bulb moment went off with him about um, leveraging your expertise and what you were doing in that office for faculty. So first of all, that he had that, that um, vision about it. And I, and the second thing that fascinates me is the, how I don't, I'm, I'm curious how you were able to introduce or build a relationship with faculty, because just like what you said, you know, this perception of ooh, ooh, scary medical school faculty, right? Um, and there's this whole culture around uh, medical schools and very, um, you know, very distinct kind of silo. So I'm wondering how you've been able, maybe it's in part to the, to the dean, but could you talk to us how you were ma- able to marry these cultures and and help the faculty in the School of Medicine um, embrace what you were doing and and make it part of, of their their mindset versus that kind of separation of, oh, that's HR stuff. That's not, you know, relevant to us. So how can you talk a bit about that, um, the strategy either leadership used or you used to bridge that gap and build the relationships? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, you asking me that question just makes me chuckle. It takes me back to one of the very first uh, faculty meetings that I needed to be a part of after they had made the announcement that there was going to be this this transition, and uh, I and and some others were going to be coming in to to assist with the Office of Faculty Affairs. And the very first meeting that I attended was actually a, a faculty governance committee. So um, oh, we we are not unionized. <laughs> on campus, right? But I always like to say like that faculty governance group is kind of the closest group. And um, I came in and I was going to staff and and, and I was going to learn this. And the very first meeting, I was taking minutes about how they thought this was the worst idea they'd ever heard and how they were going to start a petition um, to to get us, if you will, kicked out, right? And I, I just, I remembered thinking, this is exactly what I thought faculty were like, you know, big, bad, and, and scary, and, and if I could go so far, somewhat elitist, right? right. And, and really what it came down to is just a, a fear of the unknown, there genuinely had not been a solid relationship between the Office of Human Resources and faculty. And it, the way that we were structured uh, actually just really reinforced that. So from a faculty perspective, they had no idea who I was. I was coming in. Uh, you know, I remember one of the quotes from that very early meeting was, you know, but they're going to treat us like employees. Mm-hmm. And I think there was this real fear that, that I was going to come in and lead with kind of policies and procedures right. and do's and don'ts and take away academic freedom. And so I, uh, I remember after that meeting, I went back to, to uh, my leader's office and said, we can undo this, right? I can just go back to working in human resources if this doesn't work. And um, you know, we back. both. I'm not interested in this challenge. <laughs> that's after right. All. I'm no longer excited. This this is not exciting to me. But I, you know, I think I I realized, you know, and reflected uh, after that first meeting that that really it it was about fear of the unknown and lack of relationship and. 
Interestingly, um, as, as Dr. Rungi and I, Dr. Rungi serves as our, our senior associate provost for faculty affairs here. As her and I have talked about and, and worked through, you know, what is our vision and mission as an office of faculty affairs, the very foundational element of our office is relationships. And as I, you know, go back to our early years, for me, that was really key is I realized that I had to let these folks get to know who I was and I needed to understand where their pain points were and what was or wasn't working. You know, the dean had to have a reason that he thought this was a good idea. And so I needed to move forward and try to make that happen. You know, in, in retrospect, uh, I probably would not have had leadership make a big announcement that this is just the way it was going to be. Um, it might have been fun to kind of pilot it or tiptoe into it uh, a little bit because they got very nervous about, you know, org charts and who reported where and were the faculty, you know, losing their power. And so what I tried to do is just not highlight any of that. When I was in faculty meetings, I only used kind of the faculty portion of my title. For a long time, I didn't necessarily highlight and I wasn't trying to be manipulative, but it, it was more a sense of we don't need to get caught up in that right now because that doesn't matter. That's just sort of a title on an org chart. I, I would like you all to get to know me and what I'm here to do. And so I started just having coffee and getting to know people and showing up at committee meetings and talking to the faculty leaders about was or was, what was or wasn't working. And, you know, at the beginning, they were somewhat reluctant to even talk to me, but I was, I think, both kind and persistent. And, you know, eventually I was able to, there were just a lot of, you know, as you can imagine, it was a faculty affairs office that only had really two and a half people at the beginning. There was a lot of low-hanging fruit that I could come in pretty quickly and help solve for them. And so... I had lots of little wins at the beginning. Uh, they understood that I was there as a partner and there to listen, and I started to garner some trust. And so what was interesting was about six months into the experiment, I remember one of the faculty leaders stopping me in the hallway and saying, you know, Kamara, we've changed our petition. Um, we still are not happy about the partnership between human resources and faculty affairs, but our petition now says we want you. Oh, my. We just don't want you to be part of human resources. Oh. And so then I knew that my next challenge was to get them to, you know, trust my colleagues yes. and the larger office of human resources as well. But it really had to start with them getting to know me and building that personal yeah. relationship um, with me. And so that's kind of been my 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 um, objective and strategy really ever since. But that is just genius. I love that nugget there that... Isn't that interesting? Just by showing up, persistent. Yeah. You said being kind, persistent. Showing up, just being there, earning trust, taking your time that you want them over. And I think that is a critical point for leaders to understand that it's so important to pick the right person, the right person for the situation who will have that kindness, that patience, that heart for understanding that they weren't coming at you out of, you know, aggressive, mal, malicious, right. or malintent, but rather fear. So someone like you who had that, that wherewithal to have the poise and to ride through the rough times and you earned their trust. I think that is so critical rather than bringing in a sledgehammer and then someone who may be walking around laying down the law, this is just the way it's going to be. The dean said this, and we're going to do thus and such, yeah. and you better get in line, march, or get off the bus kind of a thing. So I think that is really a, a great lesson that you were the right person to to bridge that gap. And so that that's, a to me, a beautiful example of, again, just showing up and um, being there and earning their trust. What a great endorsement. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was, again, I, I feel like it was a real experience 
experiment at the time. I think now we've really been able to, you know, like I said, it's the it's the foundation of everything we do in our office. It's been really rewarding and exciting to, you know, teach the other faculty affairs professionals as our office has expanded, you know, teach them some of those same lessons and, and how to get started. And it's fun for me to watch them maybe just enjoy some of that, that goodwill that, you know, that we've built uh, foundationally over all of these years, because it gives them an even stronger sort of jumping off point uh, as they go forward. Uh, they already walk in the door with some credibility because our office um, is known as, as a valuable partner on campus. And it's, it's fun to, to, to see the, the fruit of that labor, I guess, these, these years later. Well, you know, you're right. And, and these, you know, culture change does take time, but it sounds like, you know, with you said within six months, um, just waiting a, a minute or two, a beat or two, you earn that trust. And so I know you want to talk about some things today, but I, I want to just stay here for one more second because of I'm course. thinking there are probably people out there listening, thinking, well, this is great. And um, it sounds like between the School of Medicine faculty and their Office of Human Resources there at um, MCW, maybe they... Th- the faculty school of medicine really didn't know much about the OHR or human resources. They Mm -hmm. just kind of thought human resources, that's staff, that's employees, they're over there. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's one framework or one lens of saying, well, fear of the unknown. I don't know anything about them. I'm curious that perhaps there may be people out there listening right now who say, well, that's not the case for us at our institution. Faculty are aware of HR and it's mm-hmm. more of an antagonistic relationship yeah. because our faculty are trying to hire clinic staff. They're trying to hire grant people. And the HR system is standing in their way and perhaps um, clogging up the works and is a bottleneck. And they're trying to hire people, fire people, promote people, give people raises. So they're are circumstances where it may not be just like, oh, we don't know you, we don't know anything about them, but rather you're our enemy. And so that might be even more challenging of sending, you know, a Kamara, you know, little bunny hopping in there trying to be all (laughs) wonderful and generous. And I hear I'm here to help you and they want to slaughter you. So can you think of of an example or perhaps some lessons for those people out there who are in this kind of an antagonistic relationship, realizing that as our budgets are getting cut and academic medicine struggles with payer reimbursement and all these struggles that we have and realizing that in faculty affairs and faculty development, we need to get more creative with partnering with our own offices and our own institutions. And, you know, we need to start if we don't already building these kind of relationships with our HR friends. How would you or what kinds of things would you suggest or recommend to some of these maybe antagonistic relationships between HR and faculty? Yeah, thanks, Kim. I think that's an excellent question because I think that's probably more often the situation if there's not a a good relationship there, that it is less about we don't know you and more about, you know, we already have conflict or um, we we don't see things the same way from a policy perspective. And we certainly had elements of that at the time, and I would argue still have elements of that um, from time to time. And so I often see my role as being somewhat of a bridge builder uh, between the two camps. And so when others have approached me about, you know, this model or how do you do this successfully, it's one of the key elements that I that I bring out is you need to have someone from your Office of Faculty Affairs that's willing to be a bridge builder or extend that hand to human resources and, you know, be willing to sort of see things from both sides. So, you know, uh, an example, I, I, I can think of many. I think hiring um, is, a, is a big one. I think that, you know, performance reviews and evaluation was another big, big area where, you know, we wanted to do it uh, in one way, but what maybe worked for staff was going to be not readily accepted by faculty or maybe even offensive by faculty, right? right? Because faculty have a career and a call. And yes, we want our staff to have that too. But for some of our staff, this is really it's a job, you know, and we're coming in and we're doing our job. And so the, the evaluation um, 
forms and processes and things like that need to reflect those differences. And so what I found very early on in my role was that I actually had to spend a lot of time educating my HR professionals on and colleagues on the difference between faculty and staff and that there were legitimate differences there. And, you know, here's what that looks like. And so I spent sessions where I would pull my HR colleagues in a room, starting with HR leadership and then working with their teams. And I would just talk about even just like the mindset of faculty, right? And um, I would talk about the trajectory of faculty members. How does someone get into academic medicine? What does it mean to be a faculty member? What does it mean to, to stay a faculty member? And how is that different from our experience as staff at the institution? And then as a result of that, what are those, what are those ramifications, right? How does that impact such and such policy or, um, or how we do this or how we do that? Mm-hmm. And so I did spend a lot of time, I guess I would say, legitimizing the differences between staff and faculty and making sure that we understood each other. I'll be honest with you, especially in those early years, I did a lot of the translating. So I might have been working with my benefits team or working with the um, compensation professionals uh, and I would get their information and I would take it to the faculty. So they would hear things um, through through my lens first because then I could really adjust that message. And so I had to have trust with my HR colleagues that they trusted me to kind of advance that message, which meant I was also spending a lot of time relationship building on the HR side as well. You know, and then eventually what, what would happen, and, and again, a lot of this was iterative. I'm I'm 10 years into this journey now, but you know, as I would start to introduce, let's say, compensation philosophy sorts of things or hiring practices, and they would, and faculty would get more and more comfortable with the idea, then I might invite my compensation leader to the next meeting and just have them meet him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, interestingly enough now, like like that example, our compensation leader, um, the faculty go directly to him now. Um, he is considered fully a part of, you know, kind of faculty compensation. He's incredibly active and, and involved in the, the AAMC group on business affairs in terms of advancing things for for medical schools. And that, that really all started by just sort of subtly introducing him. And then as he had credibility as my colleague, you know, then we were able to go further. So, you know, I, I hate to have it sound simplistic in terms of building relationship because I actually don't think that's easy. It takes a tremendous amount of emotional effort and energy, but that is where I have spent a lot of my career focused is, okay, where, where are my barriers? Where are people not getting along? What's not happening the way it should? For me, that triggers the, okay, what relationship isn't established there that needs to be, and is there a way to get that established? And I think you said it earlier, but it's then, you know, having the patience to, to move forward in that. I will say that the other thing is you don't, try to tackle it all in the first time. You know, I, I had to look I had to look the other way on a lot of things um, early on that I might have said, oh, I really wish they wouldn't do it that way. Or maybe from an HR perspective, I'd kind of go, oh, that pains me. But you know what? That just was not the battle to fight. Mm-hmm. And I think I still... I still, when I'm working with, you know, my leaders now, it's a lot of those same conversations of, I understand that. And maybe a year from now, that'll be the battle to take on. I'm not sure it is today. And here's why. And so, you know, learning the right timing of things as well. And so you might have to take a year and a half, 18, 24 months to build a relationship with your HR department before you're even able to talk about the first thing that you partner on. Um, but maybe after you do that, then you find that one thing that you can partner partner on. And then when there's a success there, you know, you're able to grow it. I mean, we've had 10 years of growing this partnership to the point now where if you were to look at our daily operations, you would 
probably not see much. You you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell, well, what's FTE that's dedicated to faculty affairs and, and which are FTE dedicated to human resources because we've become fairly embedded with one another. Wow. But that took a long time to get there. And that's that's a marker of success, just that, that, that people don't have these clearly delineated job roles of this is right. this and this is that. And I, I just love what you just said. A couple things is, it's so hard being patient for those of us who, you know, come from academic medicine background where we're mm-hmm. we're impatient. We want things to happen fast, 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 and we're, we don't yeah. want to sit around and wait. So that is such a good reminder for those of us. The things that matter most in life often do take time, and 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 be being patient and slowing down and remembering that things will happen if you just kind of trust. Trust people and tr- and and yeah. know that um, they all want it. Everybody wants to do a good job. I mean, nobody yep. wakes up in the morning and says, "I really want to ruin some lives and make things miserable for people." Right. We all right. want to have value and and know that we are making a difference in the world. And and the other thing I like that you said that is is uh, again another great reminder is we have to bring diverse people to the teams and to the tables and mm-hmm. diversity not only in race and ethnicity and age and gender and and offices and right. and titles and staff and faculty and the more diverse the better the outcomes because once people sit at the table and hear the conversations and hear as you refer to these pain points and hear what's happening then all of a sudden there's these aha moments where mm-hmm. you know as you describe people go back to their home office and offices or you know work areas and go oh my gosh I had no idea because we have so many preconceived notions of well yeah. their yeah. hr of course they must understand blah 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 and hr is probably thinking well their faculty surely they must understand or know about blah 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 Exactly. No, we don't. And, Mm -hmm. or neither party, we're so embedded and we're so in the weeds that we really, it's a kind of that aha of stepping back, being patient and saying, okay, wait a minute. We have to go back to HR 100 or 100, 101 or faculty 101. Mm -hmm. This, you cannot make the leap X steps ahead and assume, make assumptions that people know or understand your perspectives or your policies or how you you operate. We have a couple advisory boards for junior faculty and senior faculty for our Office of Faculty Development. And shortly after we put those together, I said, you know, we need to have our HR organization development folks at this table. And it was the same thing. I mean, it, at first, it was kind of like when, when she introduced herself, there, there was, you know, the proverbial and the actual outright eye rolling, like, oh, here we yes. go. And, yeah. and faculty just unloaded. And I thought, oh, my. But, you know, I said that this is good to hear and good to share. And I remember that the, the HR OD person was like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. And I'm like, well, this, right. is, this is good. I'm, I don't take it personally. But now you understand, you know, we have to have people come to faculty senate meetings. You have to hear these conversations and go to faculty meetings and go to committee meetings just to understand what are people struggling with, both sides of that. So I like how you you suggest to folks, go to the meetings, be there. Yep. And then yep. once you have this comfort, invite colleagues that everybody mm-hmm. else can get, you know, understand where the where they can bring value, where they can have ideas. And so that that diversity and hit, hitting that, um, getting people to the table is so right. And I see that over and over and over again. And as you said, the crux is relationships. Right. People don't, you know, you hear people talking and sharing and then the ideas start generating. Well, hey, well, I could do this. We could just subtly tweak that. Right. Yeah, it's it's very powerful. And, you know, I think I think once, you know, titles and hierarchy become less important when we're starting to do really good work together in a in a sense of partnership and you know i think that's one of the other things that we've seen over over the years is you know and 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 i've i talk a lot about balancing so we honor we always honor the accomplishments of our faculty members and what it has taken to get to where they are in their journeys and their careers but we also don't let that 
you know, stop us from entering into how we can help them as well, right? Because, you know, initially when you've not had maybe that same interaction with faculty members, it can feel intimidating. Right or it can feel out of reach. And so that ability to, to be able to balance that. And, and I, I think I remember maybe one of the first times earlier in my career uh, in faculty affairs where I said something uh, that felt, I think it was just a, some organizational development kind of theory thing that was, that was germane to the conversation at the moment. And it felt so basic to me. This had been part of my schooling. It had been part of my, and I remember these faculty members were looking at me like I was Einstein in that moment, you know, like it was just, Genius. it was something they'd never thought about. And it just made so much sense. And I thought, wow, you know, back in the circles that I run in, this is just stuff we know, I, you know, like everyone just knows this. Do you not know this? And I think that was, you know, one of those, you know, early moments for me to realize that we do all have something to offer each other as well. That's right. And so, you know, in addition to be able to have, and, and I think this happened to me on my journey along the way too, just as even as I gained confidence to be able to say, not only can I go in and serve and support the faculty, which I believe is one of the fundamental roles of an Office of Faculty Affairs. That the way that I serve and support the faculty is also uh, not just sort of like um, delivering on services, but is also to bring my thought leadership to the table. Um, and I'm always encouraging that of my staff as well as they're out there that, you know, they need to hear from you as well. And don't just assume because these are brilliant individuals with all of these initials after their names, and you maybe have less initials after your name, that you don't have some thought leadership to bring to them as well. And I, you know, I think that's one of the other things that has helped to really encourage our influence on campus um, as well as being, you know, being willing to open our mouths too at the right time. I love it. Wow. That is so powerful. Yeah. Every, everybody brings value. You, you're exactly yeah. right. And the only way people can feel, as you say, confident or comfortable, <clears throat> excuse me, in is being in a safe environment where the culture allows that. And so it yeah. sounds like at MCW, you've built that um, that relationship and that culture where people are willing to speak up and, and know that they're going to be safe and not shot down and they will be heard. So that, that's so important. And I love that you built that model up there. It's the diversity aspect, I think, yeah. that you were talking about. You know, early on when when our uh, combined offices were launched, we were the Office of Faculty Affairs and Diversity. Uh, we had a different senior associate dean for faculty affairs at the time. And so uh, one of the other things that I think our office has done well, and, and maybe this, this is where the, the AVP title comes from as well, but is we've been able to identify things that are needed on campus play in that space for a little while to get it going. And, you know, I, I, I like to call it we, we birth ideas and movements and initiatives, and we nurture them as long as they need us to nurture them. But our hope is that eventually they find a home somewhere. And so I like to think of, you know, kind of faculty affairs fingerprints all over all over campus. But one of those areas was diversity and inclusion. And I think that, you know, being so focused on that so early on, now we have a chief diversity officer, we have an office with five uh, diversity and inclusion specialists in it. But at the time, it was myself and the, the senior associate dean for faculty affairs that were moving those initiatives forward on campus. And I think a lot of it was that that focus, Kim, as you were mentioning, that helped me, you know, think through some of those things. And so we did little things now very, very iteratively. It wasn't like just one day I did this. But, you know, we have name tense at a lot of our meetings or search committees so that people know who each other is and we don't have to go through that embarrassment. And, you know, it used to be for faculty members, we had their name and then whatever degrees or initials were after their name. And so we would put that all together and uh, inevitably we would get two or three of them wrong and it was this offensive thing. And, you know, and eventually I said, you know, again, this was this took a little bit of time. But I said, you know, what if at this next meeting we just put people's first and last names? Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't do doctor and we didn't do, because we have both staff and faculty on a number of these committees. And right. and so, I don't know, that was probably six years ago. We haven't put initials or doctor or anything on, on name tense in, in five or six years. Wow. 
And I think it was, and again, not to, not to, um, I always say not to not honor the accomplishment, right? There's a place and a time for those things, of course. Uh, but there are also times when it's helpful if we're just all in the room together being being thought partners and moving things forward. And so it's sometimes it's little things like that that I think have helped to create our environment as well where we have, and I would never say that we don't have any staff faculty hierarchy issues, but um, they certainly are, are far less. And I, I, it sounds funny that changing the name tense would be part of it, but I do think all of those little things actually impact. Oh my gosh, I, I, I love it. And I just, I learned so much um, from these interviews. This is so great. It just making me think about you know, just the small things like this, the small things that we, who spent our whole lives studying and, and trying to be these, you know, live the life of the mind and things have to be so complex and so complicated. And sometimes these simple things and these simple yeah. realizations of let's pare this down. We are human beings. We are people. We all have stories. We all have families and come from families and come from, uh, you know, things and life events that happen to us. And we find ourselves in this place wanting to make a difference. And yeah, you, you, you've, you know, earned these credentials and degrees. Yeah. And guess what? After a period of time, when you know someone, you do end up calling them by their first name. So that simple right. adjustment is like, naturally, over time, uh, friends use first names, because that's how human beings interact. And it just the, right. the simple things of you're that's making right. me think of I, I just, unfortunately, found myself voted in on my my homeowners association board. Uh, yeah, it was an awful day in my life. And and the first thing I said was at the meeting, I was like, well, you know, I, I understand that, you know, boards of directors and town councils and city whatevers, you know, operate in this kind of a format. But I find the fact that, you know, the five of us sitting at this table facing the five or six people who are fellow neighbors in our own community uh, across yes. from us. I said, this seems really adversarial. <laughs> yes. like, can we maybe just sit around a table, all of us together? Mm-hmm. And and that kind of the eyebrows going up, well, that's just not the way we've done it. And I'm like, right. oh, yeah, but is there something that bylaws that says we have to be seated across tables as if we're like in litigation? Right. And, and that kind of just a subtle shift. I, you know, I love the way you Talk about the table, the name tables, because exactly, inevitably, someone comes up to us after every meeting and says this letter or that letter or this title yep. or that title. And, um, <laughs> oh. so yeah, that's that balance of respect, but then realization that, you know, come on, folks, we're not at a professional conference. This is in our own home. We're, we're at home right. here. This is our own family. We don't have to call each other by titles. This is it. Right. Right. And I do. I think that's the that's the difference. It's understanding the right. Like if it's convocation and let's get out the regalia and and let's bring the titles and let's let's celebrate and honor those achievements. If it's if there's a lot of people from the outside, you know, like you said, if there's if it's a big conference or something, then we always have that title and the respect. Uh, But there is a point in time. And, you know, I even like when we're bringing new folks in into the team, it's you know, it you know, it's a it's doctor until they tell you it's not doctor. You know what I mean? And we talk about how do you how do you do some of these things so that we are always being respectful. Uh, but but you're right. There's a moment at which we are all humans. We're all part of the humanity. I think a lot of our diversity and inclusion work here at MCW focuses on being able to bring, you know, the full sense of who you are to the table every day. And I think that that has resonated both for staff and faculty, because I think even for faculty at times, there's, there's a lot of moments where they would like to just sort of show up as themselves, if you will. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, be able to have that, that, that human, uh, human aspect to our interaction. So, so it is the art of it. You know, it's interesting, Kim, because I think even as we've thought about like who we hire into our Office of Faculty Affairs and frankly, who we hire into our Office of Human Resources, I will tell you that that is a challenge for us because all of these things that we're talking about don't fall in some sort of manual somewhere that you can open up and say, do this. Right. 
do that. It's not a very black and white process. There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of critical thinking. Um, I talk a lot about needing to be really aware of our environments and, and what's going on and setting the right environment for relationships to be built and trust to be established. And that, that isn't done well when you're a real black and white thinker. Mm-hmm. And so trying to figure out the right talent to bring in to help support what we're doing, that has also, I think, been an evolution for us over the years, again, both in human resources and faculty affairs. And as that partnership has gotten stronger, we've been able to think a lot more about the professionals that we're bringing into both offices together to make sure that they really help support this culture that we're trying to build. Right. On the other hand, the person that I have doing um, doing our, our promotion and tenure process and supporting all those committees, they are brilliant at what they do and they're very black and white, right? I I actually don't want that person thinking too much in the gray. I do need them to kind of make sure we stick to our faculty handbook and the rules are what the rules are in certain, right? Um, And so, you know, it it does take some, and I guess maybe that's where the talent strategy person in me comes out um, a little bit stronger is, is understanding the right people for the right roles. That's right. I can't help but think of the Myers-Briggs when we talk about That's right. different personality preferences. You, you know, you're going to want someone on your team who is the feeler and the thinker and That's the right. judger and the perceiver. You, you yes. need all those and recognizing our own weaknesses or areas where we have to work a little harder that, geez, it's a, life's a lot better when you can have someone on your team or in your inner circle who has that gift or that preference. So That's right. Uh, yeah, it's perfect. Well, you've already inspired and encouraged me. And uh, what else? I know you wanted to talk about some new or innovative or things you're excited about. What else did you want to share with our community today, Kamara? Absolutely. Thank you. I think the the thing that we're probably most excited about at the moment, we have spent the last year really focused on uh, faculty well-being on a, what I would consider to be a, a personal level, what sort of um, techniques and support mechanisms can we put in place to assist with the well-being of our faculty. This year, we're starting to tackle some of that at more of the systemic level. And so that's the tougher stuff. Uh, But we're really excited about some of the partnerships that we've been able to, again, relationships, right, build with some of our hospital partners, some of our other affiliate partners to begin to look at themes we've been hearing from our faculty members around around um, things that are just systemic. They are inherent in their work day or what they're asked to do throughout the day that, you know, um, as we jokingly say, you can tell me to meditate all day long, but if this is still a huge irritant for me, there's probably no amount of meditation that is going to help get me through that. Right. And so we're really going to start to tackle that this year. I'm very excited about that. I am not naive in that I don't believe that it will be easy, but I'm, I'm excited about the challenge and the potential impact uh, that that will have uh, on our faculty and our staff. So uh, I would say, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I would love to hear if you wouldn't mind just giving us mm-hmm. a real quick overview. It sounds like you've broken up your faculty well-being initiative into the, the personal and systemic level. Yeah. So it sounds like it was staged such that you yeah. maybe had some initiatives around the personal individual level and now you're yes. moving on. But could you just briefly kind of run through a couple highlights of what what were the themes or what you did at that personal level and then how you decided to now, okay, moving on to the next? Yeah, so we really started talking about faculty well-being, and I know that sounds simple, but oftentimes there's there's power in the perception that my organization cares and that my organization values my well-being. And so we had the, you know, our dean of the School of Medicine and our president of MCW, you know, put messaging out about how taking care of yourself was important. And then we created toolboxes. We actually implemented the, the well-being index, which is a tool that you can use to, you know, assess the well-being uh, of your faculty and then build resources into that that faculty members can take advantage of. We've had some really nice utilization uh, of that tool. We really tried to equip our department chairs. We've put some videos together that that highlight um, some, you know, real uh, some real known faculty on campus, 
Uh, and then some of our newer faculty on campus talking about their well-being practices. Oh, I love it. So I guess I would say we've just tried to make it a little bit more part of our DNA. Like we're a place that values well-being and some of this stuff maybe sometimes can sound a little woo-woo. And so we wanted to try to make it like practical for people to say, no, there, there's something powerful in this. And, and, you know, I think we've realized, I think Dr. Rungi and I have realized as we've, as we've been going out that, you know, that, everyone is starting to say, yeah, okay, we got it. And, and we're doing these things and we're, we're grateful for these things. So thanks for spending, you know, the last 18 months or whatever doing this. But now I've got this incredible irritant over here and I'm really wondering if you're going to start to address that. Uh-huh. Good. <laughs> so I think that's been, you know, so for us, we started with the personal because we knew it was something we could do. The systemic, uh, especially at the beginning, as we were looking at, you know, we have faculty that work in hospitals that we don't own. We have, right? It, it felt big and it felt like we weren't sure how we could tackle it. I think that's becoming maybe a little bit clearer for us at this point. And I think we're going back to our, our foundational tactics of let's build relationships, let's get ourselves on the committees, let's understand where the hospitals are coming from, um, let's understand what the pain points are on both sides and then see if we can't, you know, influence and and push some change through it. So I have no idea what it's going to look like at the end of this year, but we know that we're starting by, you know, again, as we just said earlier, getting at the table, sitting at the table, getting all the voices at the table instead of just like, well, you know, those hospital partners do this. And well, you know, those faculty won't do that. Um, Let's get everybody around the table and start to figure it out. And I, again, I think as faculty affairs professionals, at least at MCW, we find that that's the power of our role is, you know, bridge building and um, match. I, sometimes I consider myself like a professional matchmaker uh, in terms of ideas and resources and relationships and, um, you know, trying to bring this all together with the motivation of, you know, making this a better place and moving us forward. Love it. Now, operationally, how does this happen? Do you have a well-being committee or is mm-hmm. there, do you have a chief wellness officer? Um, how mm-hmm. does this look like who owns these projects? So we do not have a chief wellness officer at, at the moment, though you could argue that Dr. Rungi in our office serves as that and she could add that to her, her business uh, card <laughs> uh-huh. uh, if she wanted to, but it, it hasn't been formalized. And so we do have a, we have a wellness committee, uh, an MCW wellness committee that is run and owned by our office right now. So it reminds me a lot of diversity issues six years ago where there wasn't anywhere else for it to live. It was a real need. We knew it was going to be good for our community, so we owned it and moved it forward until it could find a place to live. I think well-being and wellness will likely be the same. It's it's owned by us. It's moved forward by us right now. At some point, my guess is it will it will live somewhere else where we will still have a great opportunity to partner, but someone else will take it on. Um, we also have wellness consortiums with our hospital partners and other affiliate hospitals. So we make sure that we sit on those wellness consortiums as well um, and work hard to, you know, bring those initiatives together. I, I really, um, this is the second time now you've said this, and I like this metaphor of you in your office, birthing ideas, mm-hmm. nurturing them, and then hoping they get adopted somewhere. I, I love yeah. that. And I'm thinking in my head of like these rover rescue, I'm thinking of adopting a dog <laughs> yeah. and all these like dog ad- right. pet adoption sites where this here, I, I picture your office going, here's a program we started on personal wellness and a little bio and I can click on it. It's a great picture. And somebody could say, yeah, I'll adopt you. And they click on it and okay, Department of Medicine now has adopted that, that, you know, idea. Yep. So I love your metaphor of birthing ideas and nurturing yep. ideas and hoping your ideas get adopted somewhere. Yeah, it's been great. Our our awesome center, which is the Advancement of Women in Science and Medicine, uh, which is really our one of our newest centers on campus, which is is truly designed to to research how we advance women into more leadership roles uh, within the academy, if you will. You know, the last two or three years, that's been living in faculty affairs, and now it has you know birthed itself into its own center um, and its own initiative. So I I do think uh, that's a hallmark of, of of ours. It's a philosophy that I think I've had from the beginning. Certainly, again, our senior associate provost, Dr. Rungi, she's an idea person. 
in uh, all day long. So this also, I think, matches really well with her personality. She's got a lot of energy and a lot of drive. And so she, too, loves to just grab these things and run with them and take them as far as we can and then hopefully hand them off to someone who will do a great job with it. Yeah, definitely. Chris is amazing. We had her on the podcast um, early on, I think back in January, interviewed her. She is, she's definitely a force to be reckoned with. Um, yep, lots absolutely. You two, MCW, wow, they, they hit a home run with you two. Well, we do believe very strongly, as I know a number of other places do, but really in that dyad partnership model. And I would say that's the other thing that I think is powerful about the office is, you know, faculty fairs should be run by a faculty member and there should be a deep faculty presence there. Um, And then I, on the staff side, really get to help Chris execute on that vision and that strategy and, and figure out how to do that. And so we've got that same sort of faculty staff partnership model in in a lot of different areas within MCW, and we found it to be a very powerful model. Amazing. I can't help but go to budget issues. Now, without getting into all the gory details or, I mean, you've talked a lot about relationship building and going to meetings and having (laughs) discussions and and just being present, and that certainly Mm -hmm. costs money. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if any of the personal well-being or the systemic well-being, even though you've not really identified what those will be, if anything, any of those ideas has had a a, a big um, financial footprint, and how does it work? And if so, does do you can you speak essentially is what I'm asking to a budget? So, for example, at Hopkins, I'm we're not given a budget; we're just told we don't have any money, don't spend any money. So, <laughs> so I and I, yeah. I imagine in some other world that other people actually do have budgets, and that would be a yeah. fantastic co- concept. So, I'm wondering how how your offices and your your partnerships deal with uh, money and budget and Mm -hmm. especially when you're birthing and nurturing these ideas and then you're giving them up. I mean, do these come with price tags? How do you decide, oh, we don't have a budget to do that, but maybe somebody else will adopt it and they can do it? Right. So we do have a budget. Um, It was one of the things 10 years ago I inherited, which was great. Um, And then, of course, Human Resources has a budget. And so I have the luxury of being able to play with both, if you will, to make sure that ideas get funded. Now, I... I would hate to send the message that those budgets are flush with money, that we just have the freedom to go out and do whatever we want, because at the end of the day, we are still overhead for the institution. And so we do have, but, but we do have, we do have budget. And so, you know, for Chris and I, it's really a matter of, of looking at the priorities every year to see, you know, where, where are we going to, to spend that money? Um, There have been times where we've had to give up some of that budget to go with our launched idea. Um, Most of the time, what we've attempted to do is to say, you know, for instance, yes, we're birthing diversity and inclusion. It's leaving us. um, But here's what we're going to do next. And so this is why this money should stay with us. And you should find additional funds to um, to fund that that new initiative. Um, and I'll be quite frank: sometimes we've held on to things and haven't launched them yet because the institution hasn't been ready to fund them, and we're not ready to lose that money. So then, you know, we'll hang on to that work a little bit a little bit longer. Some of the work that we're doing around well-being has actually been uh, philanthropy. So um, we had a, a number of individuals in the Milwaukee community that were very interested in making sure that our doctors were well and had some passion around well-being and wellness and so donated money for our video project. And um, so so we've tried to be creative with, with where some of the money comes from. And then, you know, I don't know the systemic pieces. I'm really hoping we're going to be able to, you know, leverage the money that our hospital partners have. And there have been a number of times where I've leveraged programs or things that they already have going on that are funded and said, wouldn't it be a great idea if you brought that to our physicians as well, because they're the ones providing care in your hospital. And they say, oh, that's a great idea. And they fund it. So, you know, some of it is, you know, again, just really trying to be creative with limited resources. But we do have dollars. We do have some dollars to work with every year. So I just picked myself up off the floor from about 50 seconds ago when you said your community philanthropy, community, corporate sponsors. 
say, gee, Willikers, we want yep. all those faculty at MCW to be, yep. to be happy and well. How in yep. the world do they, <laughs> do, do corporate leaders know that, that burnout is an issue? So this goes to a marketing thing. I mean, so it I'm does. curious it does. how this happened. And then, how this beneficence of going, oh, I'm just going to go, you know, write a check to MCW to help mm-hmm. their faculty. It, because I'm thinking, again, there may be people out there going, oh, my gosh, into my community, the corporate leadership say, oh, that place, you know, Hopkins, they're flush. Those physicians are rich. They don't need anything. They're <laughs> right. taking over the city. They're these, you know, big, you know, whatever. And and in fact, it's wrong. You know, our faculty are at the 20th yeah. percentile in, in salary, so we don't have money. Right. But how in the world do, does this work in your community that corporate sponsors um, are so uh, generous and, and caring yeah. to your faculty? Well, I have to give credit to our to our development office to our and to our chief development officer, you know, as they've been out cultivating relationships, they're listening to what is important to these individuals and then making those those connections back. Um, we also work very hard to make sure that our board of trustees is educated around what's going on in the world of academic medicine. And so we know that that faculty and physician burnout has been an issue for us. It's hitting the national, uh, it's been on the national stage, right? And so we work hard to, you know, at least once a year, be educating our board of trustees um, on some of these issues. And so, you know, in this particular case, you know, our chief development officer is out there nurturing relationships. We're educating them and the board of trustees around what are some of the biggest challenges that we're facing as an academic medical center. And, you know, a connection is made. A connection is made that um, that there is a family member of a very wealthy family um, in town that deeply values wellness. This families had a solid relationship with MCW. And so after about six or seven months of conversation and cups of coffee and educating on, you know, physician burnout and different things like that, you know, the next thing you know, it's let's partner and do this. I'm really excited about, you know, making MCW physicians well. And, you know, of course, selling what we are to the community. So again, it didn't happen overnight, right? Right. Um, but it, it did happen. And again, I have to give lots and lots of credit to our, to our development officers who are, who are out there listening for these themes and then thinking about how they can connect that back within our organization. And this is another critically important point that speaks to diversity again, that we in faculty affairs and faculty development should be working with HR, development, philanthropy, getting a seat at the board of trustees table. So this is a great, um, a great idea to take home to say, uh, go back to our institutions and ask our deans, can we have you, I'll personally say in the six plus years I've been at Hopkins, I have no level of awareness that we in our field, our space of faculty affairs, a faculty development, faculty affairs have ever been invited to a board of trustees meeting uh, right. to raise these issues. So this is another right. important nugget that diversity ru- runs, you know, horizontal and vertically uh, across yep. all levels and up and down that I, I bet you there are people certainly here in Baltimore and those of us listening on the podcast in our own towns who would love to contribute and that would be something that they're just not aware of. And and as you're yes. talking, Kamara, it made me think, uh, because we started the academy on our medical campus, which is a is a new center for our retirees from the School of Medicine, ah. School of, Public, of Nursing and School of Public Health. And this is a great thing for late career faculty mm. members transitioning yep. into retirement or thinking about how can I contribute. That This is, of course, now we're talking about alums or philanthropy sure. to the point of retirees. But certainly, I can imagine there may be some faculty members, actually, who have retired and are thinking about what kind of legacy can I leave? Well, in part, it might be the fact that I'm seeing burnout and I'm seeing that That's right. maybe part of the reason why I'm deciding to transition out is because it's becoming very difficult. And wow, I never thought about, yeah, that's true. I could leave some money or contribute some of my treasure to uh, this ongoing initiative with faculty affairs. So there are just so many opportunities that, and people, I think, want to volunteer and give time and share their talent, but unless they know about it, and unless people have 
are at tables and share in these conversations. They just simply aren't even aware. So that's another right. great nugget you've brought to us, Kamara. So thank you. You're welcome. You've you've shared so much with us. And uh, before we leave, was there anything else? We I kind of spent uh, took you off a couple side roads there. Was there anything else you wanted to share with us uh, to inspire no. or encourage us? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, other than, and, and I think, you know, this might be a little bit of preaching to the choir as I think about who's likely listening, but I do think that, you know, moments like this when we can reflect and listen and learn from, from what our colleagues are doing across the country are always such a, a good reminder of the value that, that this work does bring. I think to your point, sometimes it can feel very sort of unseen um, and uh, and maybe not as trumpeted, but, I you know, I do think to pause and take that moment, you know, like I like to say, looking for your fingerprints um, across the organization, because I, I think that is what we get to do as faculty affairs professionals is really impact the, the, the lives of both our faculty and our institutions as a whole um, by, by doing some stuff that, that I think is really exciting and, and really fun. And if we're willing to be creative and step out and risk it a little bit, right, and maybe, you know, venture into an area that isn't always just traditional faculty affairs, um, I think there's some really, really great opportunities uh, that exist out there. So I would just encourage you to, again, be encouraged in what you're doing and, and to look for those creative opportunities. That's just so, so wonderful. And, and you're so right. And thank you for reminding us of that, that in this difficult work that we are providing value and then people do appreciate us and our work is meaningful and it's sometimes hard to measure and sometimes hard to um, explain to people, but we know that it's, it's making a difference and you've, you've put yeah. it really well. And clearly what you're doing at MCW with, with Chris Rungi is just fantastic work. So I think you two should organize a little like sub mini sabbaticals for faculty affairs and faculty development folks to come up to Wisconsin, maybe not in winter, mm -hmm. but like in the summer to come. Like right like now is a great time. Hang out with you two <laughs> up there. Well, Sounds good. I will get on that. Okay. I, I'd be the first. I would love to do mini sabbatical <laughs> things and little, we could like do re, uh, exchange programs for, for yeah. faculty affairs. Oh, that would be so powerful, I think. I love it. Well, folks, you've been listening to Kamara Ellefson, the Associate Vice President of Talent Strategy and Faculty Affairs at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.